back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Isabel Hess, lecturer in English at the University of Sydney. She's here to talk about her new book, The Politics of Jewishness in Contemporary World Literature, The Holocaust, Zionism, and Colonialism, published this year by Bloomsbury Academic. Isabel, thanks very much for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. First off, how did you come to write this book? Um, this book is actually based on my PhD research, um, which I carried out at the University of York. So I was interested in how ideas of Jewishness were represented in different types of literatures. And I guess I started off during my undergrad and postgrad studies when I was specializing in post-colonial studies um, and also a bit interested in the Holocaust um, since primary school. And I think at some point all these ideas started coming together. So I was really interested in how um, post-colonial novels used ideas of Jewishness. I think this was also a time when a lot of novels came out that drew on ideas of Jewishness, for example, Salman Rushdie, Vikram Seth. Um, and I think at the time I was also reading Andrea Levy's Small Island, um, which discusses the black racism or racism against black people during World War II. And I think that really got me thinking about the similarities between um, the discrimination of black people, between Jewish people, and then also thinking how this links to Israel and Palestine and how some of these ideas, or at least these ideologies, are continued um, in different contexts. Right. So you use the term ideas of Jewishness. Um, could you um, unpack that a little bit? What are ideas of Jewishness and how have they changed? Um, I think I quite consciously choose ideas because, for me, that embodies a sense of there's a reality, but this reality is adapted in fiction. Um, and in all of the novels I'm working, I'm working on, there is a strong sense that the authors are influenced by actual ideas of Jewishness, but that they also fictionalize these ideas. Um, and ideas they draw on are uh, quite wide-ranging. So they start with ideas of Jewishness linked to minority um, so being a wanderer, being marginalized, um, being in exile and diaspora, and also being a victim. Um, and then as they move along, there's some strong emphasis on ideas of Jewishness as linked to majority. So, for example, Jewish majority in the diaspora, but also, of course, Jewish majority in Israel, and how these ideas of Jewishness are transformed with the establishment of a Jewish state, how they become linked to ideas of Israeliness, um, to Zionism, settler colonialism, and to building um, a nation for the first time. So we'll just um, get stuck into the book chapter by chapter. Um, in chapter two, you discuss German-Jewish representations of Jewish victimhood and minority identity after World War II. Mm. Um, can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, actually, um, that's quite an interesting chapter, and I think it has a lot of um, interesting fictional fictionalizations of Jewishness. So I'm looking at two novels by German-Jewish writers, um, and I specifically do not focus on their, what would you term, their Holocaust fiction, but I, I analyzed their later books, which were published in um, the 1970s and 1980s. So they gave them a bit of distance from um, ideas of Jewish victimhood that emerged um, during and after the Holocaust. And I think what they do quite interestingly in their novels is that they contest the clear-cut categories between victim and perpetrator, um, so they invert the binary opposition between Nazi and Jew. For example, Edgar Hildenreich does this in this satirical um, appraisal of the journey of a Nazi who adopts his Jewish friend's identity to escape um, 
punishment for his crimes in Germany, and then he moves to Israel and he becomes a Zionist. Um, and similarly, in Jörg Becker's Bronstein's Children, um, there's an emphasis on um, victimhood as defining identity, but Bron in Bronstein's Children it's also refuted because there's a strong emphasis on suggesting that victimhood cannot be equated with um, innocence and evading responsibility, um, and this is portrayed through a generational conflict. And I think in both novels you have this contestation of essentialist categories, so not only the idea of um, the Jew as a definitive category that is linked to victimhood um, in post-war Germany, but also this idea um, of Germany being linked with Nazism and this idea that victimhood, victims are always innocent. You move on to discuss Israeli literature, and particularly literature which questions the foundational myths of Israel. Mm. What, are, what are those myths and, and how did the text that you've analysed contest them? Um, well, the foundational myths of Israel are, of course, the return to um, the Jewish land, um, the idea that this land was um, empty, and then the dismissal of the experience of the diaspora. Um, and the novels I'm looking at, they quite specifically engage with the experience of the Holocaust as a diaspora experience. Um, but they also think about specifically Shlavit Haraven in her uh, desert trilogy. She thinks about the Exodus myth and how this myth is used as a foundation for um, the state of Israel and to create a sense of nationhood. And she basically debunks this myth because she shows um, the Hebrew people not as a unified nation. So we see them wandering to the deserts, but they're not um, unified by a leader. So, for example, she takes the character of Moses from the Bible, but Moses is quite inept as a leader. Um, he does not manage to help the people initially to find their way. Um, and she also suggests alternative um, readings of the Bible and also alternatives alternative stories for Israel. So, for example, we also see the conquest of the Hebrew people, so this is quite a violent conquest, um, and we see the consequences for the people who are conquered by um, the Hebrews. And I think this is quite interesting if you consider it in light of um, contemporary politics in Israel-Palestine. Um, and although I'm not suggesting that Haraven is uh, drawing easy parallels here, in a non-fiction you get quite a strong sense that she's um, not happy with the way in which Israel occupies the Palestinian territories and that she's also um, addressing the consequences for Israeli identity um, that this occupation entails. Right. So you suggest that the figure of the Jew is becoming a recurrent trope in post-colonial literature. Can you tell us about why this is, uh, what is the Jew symbolic of, and um, how does that work out in, in the text that, you, that you're looking at here? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think um, in many ways the figure of the Jew becomes symbolic of um, cosmopolitanism, of this idea of being able to move from one context into another one. Um, and I think that's what you can see in many post-colonial novels. I think Sam Rushdie often uses the Jew as a cosmopolitan figure to draw attention to the experience of other um, minority identities. Um, in the two novels that I'm looking at, Anita Desai's Baumgartner's Bombay and Carrie Flutter's The Nature of Blood, I think they do something a bit more interesting with um, the figure of the Jews. So it's not only an easily transferable cosmopolitanism that they draw on, but they specifically think about the Jewish minority experience. For example, you see Carol Phillips um, aligning the experience of the Jews during the Holocaust with the Jews' experience in early modern Europe, but then also thinking about um, black racism um, in early modern Europe and thinking about the situation of um, the Mizrahi Jews um, in Israel. And what they also do is they draw on ideas of Jewish majority. So they think about how um, 
Jewish majority identity combines notions of Jewish minority and majority, and also the links from moving uh, from being a minority to becoming majority. And I think this is also aligned with the post-colonial condition of um, being colonized, um, sorry, yeah, being a colonized and then um, the post-colonial nation. So I think in many ways, um, what especially Carol Phillips is doing is thinking about um, the consequences of building a nation of emancipation and some of the problems that arise once you have established a new nation, um, which is, of course, um, also true for Israel, which in many ways had to think about how to create a new identity for um, the new nation and how to integrate different minorities into a majority. So it's a good lead into the, the next topic of discussion, which is when you talk about a number of works of uh, contemporary Israeli Mizrahi fiction, and you say that the fiction um, draws attention to their situation as between Arabs and Jews and colonized and colonizers. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think um, they're quite interesting in their status as being um, from North African and Middle Eastern countries. So they have an Arab culture, um, they speak Arabic, and on the other hand, um, they're Jewish or in their religion or they might also be secular, but they also identify themselves as Jewish. So I think in that sense, they're positioned between two different cult sorry, cultures. Um, and of course, in Israel, they're required to um, conform to ideas of um, European Jewishness rather than um, Mizrahi um, or Arab Jewishness. And I think that's quite an interesting tension. Um, and if you think about them in um, the hierarchy of the state, they also occupy quite an interesting um, position in relation to um, colonization. So, for example, um, the Mizrahi Jews are typically perceived as not having been present during the state building years, so they're not considered to be pioneers or sabras, although this is not historically accurate because there were Jews from Yemen who were present in the early state building years. Um, and of course, if you then think about um, the occupation of the Palestinian territories, um, on one hand, they would not, if you think of this in terms of colonialism, they would not be considered part of the colonizer because they're um, considered second-class citizens in Israel. But on the other hand, they're also um, not as colonized as the Palestinians because as Jews, they have more rights and they have more access to different services that the Palestinians um, are prevented from accessing. So I think they have an interesting, but of course also problemat problematic position um, in between the top um, and the bottom almost. So I think, yeah, between colonizers and colonizers and then of course between um, Arabs and Jews. And how do those tensions play out in the in the literature? Uh, I think the literature um, literature uses quite interesting means to engage with this. For example, um, Sammy Michael's early discussion of the position of the Iraqi Jews in Israel um, uses a more conservative approach. So we can see that the Iraqi Jews are aware of themselves as being from Iraq. They have history in Iraq. They draw on their diaspora experience. But on the other hand, he's also quite clear in his novel, um, which is called Equal and More Equal, that you need to um, adopt or assimilate to European Jewish values in order to be able to um, move up um, in the wrongs of society. Um, and I think to the two more recent novels I'm looking at, which is Yossi Sukari's um, Emilia and the Salt of the Earth and Sarah Shilo's The Falafel King is Dead, they show more interesting tensions um, between the Arab side and the Jewish side of Mizrahi Jews' identities. Um, so, for example, both novels engage with the 1967 war, which was also discussed in Sammy Michael's novel, and they specifically take this war as a moment where their loyalties are questioned and where they have to be quite explicit about um, their alliance with the Jewish people 
rather than um, with the Arab nations. Um, so they're asked to take position um, in terms of a war that they are not involved on on ideological level, although some of them, of course, participated in the war, but they're already in between and still they're asked to choose a position. And I think another interesting example is the Holocaust, um, which is often considered a European Jewish event in Israel, although there's been a lot of um, recent work on trying to make it um, a more inclusive event to think about other victims apart from European Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And I think both novels also think about this idea of Mizrahi Jews as victims of the Holocaust. For example, the Libyan Jews here, Fiosi Sikari discusses this in his novel, um, and how their experience in the diaspora um, feeds into Israeli national discourse. And I think it's quite interesting how, especially the more recent novels, so Shiloh and Sikari, um, distance themselves as well from this idea of Zionism, and they refuse to define their identity exclusively in relation to Zionism and um, Israeli Jewishness. You then move on to talk about uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, fiction. So, how do the texts that you examine? How do the texts that you examine uh, look at the problem of defining an identity for a Palestinian community? in what's defined as a, a Jewish national space, so within um, within Israel? Mm. <clears throat> I think, again, that's an interesting case. Um, and I think if you connect it to the Israeli Jewish experience, there are some similarities, um, but I think there are also quite telling differences. So, for example, um, the Israeli-Palestinian novel I'm looking at in the book is Anton Shamas Arabesque, which is, of course, written in Hebrew, um, and that already consists... Uh, con- considers quite an important aspect of what it means to be Jewish, so to speak the Hebrew language and to write in it. Um, and he has been commended for how well he's doing this. Um, of course, in many ways, this is a bit patronizing. But I think it's interesting that he chooses to write in Hebrew and to make his point in Hebrew. Um, and this is an idea that permeates um, his novel. So this idea of questioning the idea of Jewishness, questioning the idea of Israeliness, and showing that Israeliness is so much more than just being um about European Jewishness, but that there's also Israeli Palestinians, um, and there's also Palestinian Palestinians who define themselves in relation to Israeli to Israeliness, although of course they're not present in what would be considered an Israeli national space. And I think in many ways Anton Shamas is also responding to A.B. Yoshua's novel um, The Lover, um, which includes an Israeli Palestinian character. Um, and again, it's quite revolutionary in many ways because it's one of the first books in Hebrew literature to represent um, an Israeli-Palestinian character. Um, but in the end, his resolution is quite conservative. And I think this is one of the things that Shamas also addresses in his novel. So um, first of all, he makes it quite clear that he finds it offensive to include um, a character that is from a different identitarian location and then to um, present him in a very benevolent way. So the character Naim is never considered to be threatening or um, to be too other to be part of the Israeli national space. Although, of course, at the end of the novel, he has to be relocated to his um, Israeli-Palestinian village um, to make sure that the Israeli-Jewish national space remains intact. But I think Shamas is also showing um, what you can do with language and how language functions as a colonizing device. So this idea that Hebrew is also a colonizing force, and I think he writes back to that in his novel as well. So um, resisting... Um, the master would be using his own tools. You write about two different types of Jewish characters in in Palestinian literature um, that's from the West Bank. So on one hand, flat, interchangeable characters that are soldiers and settlers, 
and then you have also more complex depictions of Jewish characters that are Jewish uh, Jewish civilians. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the novels I'm looking at are by Sal Khalifa and Rada Shahade, and as I said, both of them depict life in the West Bank, where, of course, your encounter with um, Jewish characters is quite limited. So on one hand, you get encounters with settlers and soldiers, which are quite one-dimensional. Um, and as I argue in the book, this is, of course, done on purpose to show um, the inhumanity of the encounters, for example, at checkpoints with soldiers or um, the dangers and the risks associated with encountering settlers um, and the danger that uh, Palestinians perceive themselves um, to be in. But I think what is interesting in the book is that there's encounters with civilians um, which are much more developed and which reveal a sense or an ability to empathize with the other side. So, for example, you have in Sarah Khalifa's The End of Spring, one of the main characters, the Palestinian Ahmad, um, encounters Mira with a Jewish girl from a settlement. Um, and they develop a friendship. And for a while, it looks like Khalifa is really advocating this idea of dialogue and to get to know the other side. But of course, at the end of the novel, this friendship cannot persist because on a more general level, Khalifa is quite aware that before that, that there's any kind of dialogue, there's so many injustices that need to be redressed and past sufferings um, and wrongs that need to be um, remedied before there can be a dialogue between both sides. And also in Shahada's novel, we see a friendship between uh, himself and um, he has a Jewish friend who's called Enoch, and they exchange their different um, histories of suffering. So he exhibits a sense of um, being aware of the Jewish suffering, and his friends also um, empathize with the suffering of the Palestinians. But again, you see quite a pronounced um, rejection of this friendship, because as um, the novels go along, and also as time passes, um, the political situation of the Palestinians um, influences the representation of this interaction, and you just see that on a political and ideological level, um, these friendships cannot persist. So in your final chapter, you turn to uh, the Metropolitan Imaginary and a particular text that uh, you say complicates a common binary perception of Western versus Arab conceptions of the Holocaust and Jewish suffering. Um, can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, so basically uh, Gilbert Ashka argues in his um, book that on one hand the West perceives the Holocaust um, as an event that is linked to um, responsibility and guilt, so the sense that on a certain level everyone um, is guilty of not doing something to prevent the Holocaust. And then the more the opposed view would be the Arab perspective on the Holocaust. Um, it's quite strongly influenced by um, an empathy for Palestinian suffering and the Palestinian cause, which supersedes um, the Jewish suffering in this perception. Um, and in the final chapter, I look at Wilhelm um, Sansal's novel, um, An Unfinished Business, and he's a French-Algerian writer, so I think that's already quite an interesting um, hyphenated identity. So on one hand, you have the French identity and then the Algerian identity, so a tension between um, the West and um, the Arab um, sides and the perspectives on the Holocaust. Um, and he also transfers this onto his characters. So his characters also have a French-Algerian heritage, but their father um, was uh, a member of the SS. And throughout the novel, there's the sense that both brothers need to engage with the Nazi past of their father and to um, find out more about the Holocaust to be able to come to terms with their own identity. And I think what Sansal shows here is that, not, that there's not necessarily an equation between um, being Arab and rejecting the Holocaust or between being Western and 
adopting a perspective of guilt or responsibility towards the Holocaust. Although this is the resolution he chooses in the end um, for his novel, so um, he has one of the brothers who feels so guilty about what his father has done during the Holocaust that he um, commits suicide. But then, um, on the other hand, you have the second brother um, who chooses to learn from the lessons of the Holocaust and um, to fight against um, Islamic fundamentalism um, on his council estate. Thanks very much for walking us through the main themes of your book um, and the arguments. I think we managed to cover a, a lot of ground in a um, short space of time. Just before we let you go, can you tell us a bit about what you're working on next? Yeah, sure. Um, so currently I'm working on a project that examines um, the Holocaust Israel-Palestine as its narrative tropes in British and German culture. So I'm following up on some of the ideas that emerged um, in my book. And I'm specifically interested in how um, a politically charged context such as Israel-Palestine and, of course, also the Holocaust um, can be, re be represented in different genres. So, for example, I'm looking at comedy, I'm looking at um, travelogues, and also documentary films. And I'm also quite interested in how these um, tropes are represented in relation to each other. So how the Holocaust might be used, or some tropes that are familiar from representing the Holocaust are used to engage with um, Israel or Palestine. Right, that sounds really interesting. All right, well, thanks very much for being on the show with us today, Isabel. Thanks for having me. It's great. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. With us today, we've had Isabel Hess, who's lecturer in English at the University of Sydney. She talked to us about her new book, The Politics of Jewishness in Contemporary World Literature, The Holocaust, Zionism and Colonialism, published this year by Bloomsbury Academic. Thanks very much. Thank you.